Yep. We'll start now. Um, guten Tag. I'm Nathan, the host of this podcast. And today I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Jan Christopher Horak. Dr. Horak is an American who grew up in Chicago. He moved to Germany in his teenage years and completed his dissertation in German after living there for 16 years. He received both his BA and PhD in history and has written many historical essays. He is currently a professor at Chapman University due to his enthusiasm about helping students do better and learn to love literature, art, and film. Dr. Horak, how are you doing? Fine, thank you. How are you, Nathan? I'm doing really well. Thank you for joining today as a guest on this show. So I'd like to start off with the age-old question. If you could have a dinner for two with any historical figure, who would it be and why? Well, I think uh, you know that I, uh, I have been interested in the Holocaust for a very long time. The reason I was always so interested in the Holocaust is because my father is actually a concentration camp survivor. And so even though when I was growing up, I didn't know very much about it, it you know, I did not learn about that until later because he never really talked very much about it. Um, that really got me interested and it li literally became kind of a life work to study the Holocaust. And so the person I would really like to talk to, who's unfortunately no longer alive now, is an, a gentleman named Eli Wiesel. Apart from uh, writing uh, uh, a, an autobiography about his own experience surviving the Holocaust and surviving Auschwitz, he dedicated his life after the war to finding the, the, the criminals who had perpetrated the Holocaust. Um, many, many people who were involved, directly involved in the mass extermination of German and European Jews escaped justice because, for various reasons, and we can go into that. And so his job was, or he made it his job, to create uh, records of where these people were cited, because many of them escaped to South America, to other countries, even to the United States, and so and would change their name, you know, change their personality. And so it was a very uh, difficult process and a process of a lot of research to track down these people. And this is what he, he spent his life doing. And he actually found a lot of people. And, and for example, he, he was one of the people that helped identify Eichmann as living in, 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 uh, in Buenos Aires. And of course, Eichmann was, was one of the architects of the, whole, the Holocaust in its final phase of mass extermination by setting up concentration camps like Auschwitz and Sobibor. Mm -hmm. um, so when he found them, how did he really try to bring them to justice? Well, he, he, he could not do that himself, of course. He did the research and then he would alert 
the authorities. So he would go to, um, after a certain point, to the German authorities because it was the responsibility of the German government after the founding of the Federal Republic of Germany uh, to uh, to prosecute these these uh, former uh, Nazi officials. Uh, it was a difficult process, and also um, there was resistance, and there was resistance on the part of the Germans. So, for example, the when Eichmann was first identified, um, there were a lot of people in the German intelligence services who had also been in the th intelligence services of the Third Reich who tried to make uh, set up barriers so that this they, that would not happen, that these people would not be brought to justice. But there were prosecutors in various places like Frankfurt who then were dedicated to bringing some of these criminals to justice. Uh, in the United States, the same thing. There were people who were brought to justice here. Um, who had been work had worked in concentration camps as guards and things like that. Usually not German citizens, but for example, in uh, Auschwitz in particular, um, there were many Ukrainian guards who worked with the Nazis. The Ukraine was allied with the Nazis during World War II, and so they were brought to justice in that way. So Weisel couldn't do it himself. He worked with the French authorities to bring some, uh, uh, Klaus Barbie, who was a very um, high-ranking Nazi official in France, who was responsible for the deportation of tens of thousands of French Jews to the camps, to bring him to the justice. Again, not by supplying the information and the evidence that they were that they were culpable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, other than his experiences, is there something specifically you'd like to ask him or discuss during this hypothetical dinner? I think the one of the the a question that interests me interests me is. It may be almost a moral question, that is, that having himself been a victim of and having survived the camps, how he was able to continue his work without being consumed by hate. You know, it's a very difficult thing. You're a young person, and it may not be so easy for you to understand, but, but hate is, you cannot do a, a job if you, are only, if you only hate. It's, you don't have the energy to do that. So I would want to know from him how he at least forgave these people to a certain extent. Even if he was, you know, wanted them prosecuted, he could not, he, he, he couldn't let himself be blinded by hate. And, and that was, that would be an interesting question for me. I, you mentioned before that I, um, you know, I had gone to Germany as a teenager and I did. And, and, you know, by that time, uh, I was 13 when I went to Germany and uh, with my parents. And um, I'd always have to take the, the streetcar to school. And 
This is in the 1960s, when that's only 20 years after the war and after the Holocaust. So I would sit in the streetcar, knowing that my father was a concentration camp survivor, knowing that one of my uncles was killed by the Nazis at, in Pletzensee. He was, he was hanged in Pletzensee. Um, that I would look at everyone over a certain age, everyone over like 50, and I, my, I would always ask myself, were they a Nazi? Were they not? Did they have Jewish friends that they betrayed? Did they profit from, you know, Jews who were, 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 were deported and their property ex, uh, appropriated? So these kinds of questions I would think about. And it was, it was always, uh, I mean, I was a young person, but still I, I thought about stuff like that because it, it just seemed inconceivable that something like this could have happened at that moment when I was that age. Mm -hmm. I think it's very admirable, like how um, Mr. Weisel was able to do this forgiveness, this act of kindness, because if not, we'd be stuck in a vicious cycle of hatred, which really yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And on that note, like do, what examples do you think are the clearest of showing how history repeats itself, or at least rhymes with itself, as Mark Twain said? Well, I, again, I, I think history does repeat itself in many ways. Um, right now, for example, the last few years in this country, when we've had a government under under Mr. Trump, we had a government that was slipping towards fascism, um, where you could slowly see the way he, by disregarding the Congress and by taking over the justice system and the police, this th what was happening here was exactly the same thing that happened in Berlin in the late 1920s and early 1930s. And I, I, would, I, I kept saying to my wife that, you know, we are now living in Berlin 1930. We're now living in Berlin 1931. When Trump was elected, I said, we are now in Berlin 1933. Um, and the danger is still there. I mean, even though for example, he's no longer president. We have a new president, but the government we have now is a little bit shaky and the Republicans are doing everything they can. Uh, they're changing the election laws. They are making they, to make sure that they win the next election. And if they do win the next election, we may have a fascist government then. And then who knows what will happen? So, this is one example in many other countries, in right now in Hungary, in Brazil, in Turkey, there are more or less undemocratic and fascist governments that have slowly taken over. They were elected democratically, and this is the important thing. Hitler, too, was elected in a democratic election, but... After the election, he may, took over the, the instruments of power, the infrastructure of power that included 
the judiciary, the police. Um, and uh, through those systems was able to, and then able, it's the press, uh, and was able to eliminate all of the enemies or what he's perceived to be an enemy so that he would have a, the only voice would be his own in his own party. And so we see this happening in a lot of other countries around the world right now. And that's, that is, in a sense, history repeating itself, and it's happened over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, and as we said before, you know, the, the genocide, too, is something that has, has, has happened over and over again. It happened as a matter of course during, you know, the, in the up to, until about 100, 200 years ago. Since then, we thought we were much more civilized. But, you know, the, the Turks committed genocide in World War I against the Armenians, where tens of thousands were, were, were murdered by the, by the Turks. We've had, since the Holocaust, we've had genocides in Uganda. We had a genocide in Bosnia-Herzegovina in the 1990s, where um, the Serbs were killing all of the ethnic um, Muslims in those areas. So uh, it's, it's, there is now, at present, from press reports, and I haven't seen it directly, so I don't know, but there is a genocide going on in, in Burma. So um, it is something that repeats itself, and it repeats itself because it's not that people don't know better. It's just that many people are afraid. Many people are not willing to make a commitment to resist. Because in a lot of ways, it's just easier if you are not directly affected to just let things continue as they are. Mm -hmm. I guess we see repetitions of populism and propaganda as forms of taking control over and over again. And what you were talking about just now with how people, because it doesn't affect them, they don't want to do something. I think it goes to Machiavellian realism on more of a personal level of if it doesn't affect you, you're just not going to touch it. But in this case, with these assumptions, how can we really still try to prevent atrocities like the Holocaust from occurring again? It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, people don't think sometimes. I mean, they've right now, um, especially because social media is not really, uh, certainly in this country, is not controlled. Um, the amount of disinformation, of propaganda that is fed through these systems, even through the regular press. Um, and a lot of people are unable to differentiate truth from fiction or lie or to characterize things as lies. I mean, for me, one of the most unbelievable things going on right now is that, you know, uh, certainly uh, 60 to 70 percent of the um, member Americans who are considered themselves Republicans are, are followers of Trump believe that the election was stolen and that, that he actually won the election. 
There have been 40 court cases that say the opposite. 40 times in court, it was absolutely proven that even the Republicans, you may have read in the press in Arizona, did their own recount in Arizona and Trump, uh, Biden ended up with a few more votes, and that was Republicans doing the counting. And yet, and yet, they firmly believe, intelligent people firmly believe that Trump was at, was really elected president and should be president. How is that possible? How is that possible? It's, it's, I, I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's, it's, it's people who only believe what they want to believe, who only look at a cer- certain kinds of information, and having people in power like Trump repeating the lie so often that it becomes the truth. And that's the big danger. Mm-hmm. Then if we say that, it's sort of inevitable that these things happen, that people are susceptible to brainwashing and such. What are really the major signs you think of an impeding crisis about to happen? Well, I think, I don't think anything is inevitable. I think that if people are willing to stand up and resist, then things can change. And um, enough people just have to have the courage to do that. Um, there are signs. This, the, 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 one of the signs is, of course, as we've just said, the fact that too many people be- believe propaganda and lies at this point. That's one danger that if when you have that. Another is, in this country in particular, the, um, the mass circulation of weapons where everyone is allowed to have a gun is, is terrible. And it is a huge danger. In uh, a year ago, uh, in Michigan, for example, you had these paramilitary, these are not regular army people, these are not pe- anyone official, these are private citizens armed with, with automatic weapons marching through the streets with impurity because in certain states, the laws have made it possible for them to march with, with all those guns in public. And the danger that once they do that, that they use them and that it comes to violence, as it did on the 6th of January, is great. And so what has to happen is when we see situations like that, you have to work to change the laws to, or change, get the election, elect people who will change the laws so that so something like that doesn't happen. But mm, I guess one final follow-up I have on that trend is more of a philosophical question. And it's really, when do we as people living in this present circumstance look back on something traditional and sort of accepted, such as the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, and go like, oh, that probably needs to be changed? No, I think the, the right to bear arms uh, is a matter of interpretation. The way the amendment was originally created was because it was created at a time when the da- there was still a large danger of foreign invasion. So 
you know, at the beginning of the 19th century, we still worried about the British invading again. In fact, they did invade again in 1812. So the right to bear arms was connected, connected with creating a home force that would resist foreign invasion. It did not mean that every single person should be, be able to have a gun and use it whenever they want. By the late 19th century, most states had passed laws restricting the use of firearms, restricting ownership. You can restrict ownership for the good of the community without, uh, without actually define the Second Amendment. So, for example, right now in most states, if you are insane, if you're criminally, if you're a criminal, there are you can still go to a gun show and buy a gun. Why? There should be laws on the books that make it so that you have to, as for example, there are in Germany where you can have a gun, but you have to pass all sorts of exams. You have to have safeguards about where it is. You cannot show it in public. You can use it only for hunting. And so it's a very complicated, long process that also costs money. So most people don't do it. And, you know, European societies, you know, Chinese societies, people don't run around with guns, right? <laughs> because there's no need to. Why? It's only the United States where that there is this insanity of guns. And it happened only in the last 20 years, 30 years, because the National Rifle Association poured so much money into the, coffer, the pockets of politicians that they voted to eliminate all of these previous restrictions that existed. When I grew up, nobody worried about guns. There weren't that many guns around. Now there are hundreds of millions of guns in this country. Yeah, so that's definitely a part of history that is very subjective. It's the written records, the oral history, there's really no objective history per se. But going... There is no objective history. History is always written, and so it is. there is always a level of subject. Now, you can work towards objectivity. You can take facts and things like that. But history always incorporates ideology to a certain degree and is always to a certain degree ideological. It is the the point of view of the victor, or it's the point of view of the vanquished. Um, so, and because those, the, that's where history is written, you know. Mm -hmm. As the popular saying goes, the victors write history. But going yes. back to um, maybe Mr. Wiesel, um, yes. like, I was wondering, what are the limit of the justice system on mass horrors? Because as you said, like, even though he was taught working with authorities to sort yeah. of these war criminals to justice, there was corruption, there were obstacles in the way. So, well, again, you know, again, it, it is that kind of the obstacles are usually because people in power allow those loopholes in the system. So, for example, 1945, the Third Reich comes to an end. You know, the Americans, the British, 
the Russians occupy Germany, take over Germany, and at least for four years, there is an army of occupation. And the goal is to eliminate fascism and to eliminate the Nazis. What happens is that many high-ranking Nazis, some went to were put on trial in, in, in Nuremberg, it's true. Others were put on, on trial in smaller courts. There was, there was a, a formally, at least, a denazification process. But very quickly, especially in, in the, uh, in the uh, in American zone of occupation and the British zone of occupation and the French zone of occupation, everyone started to worry not about the Nazis, but about the Russians and communism. And so anti-communism became the ideology. And so the enemies became the friends, people who were high-ranking Nazi officials, for example, in the, in the, in the secret service and the secret police, became allies of the Americans to fight the Russians and to fight communism. And so many high-ranking Nazis were helped to get out of Germany and to get to neutral countries in South America. The Catholic Church, for reasons that no one has ever really understood, helped move people through Europe to South America. Others, it was much more official, you know, people who had been in the military, who uh, the scientists who had developed, uh, almost developed an atomic bomb, but also certainly developed the U-2 rockets, were hired by the American government to continue their research in the United States. So justice became a very relative thing. Um, all of the people who had been in the court system, uh, judges who had sentenced tens of thousands to death for sometimes minor infractions, you know, um, listening to foreign radio or talking about uh, or saying making an anti-Hitler comment. Many of those judges, many of those prosecutors continued in their jobs after the war because the Americans thought we, we need a justice system and you can't get rid of every single judge. So let's keep them all and hope they reform. And so they, many of them were never prosecuted for the crimes they committed. Um, many people in the military, when the Americans helped the Germans rebuild their military, the same army officers who had been Nazi army officers now were German army officers. So, you know, it was with the culpability of the American government that many of these Nazis really escaped justice at that time. Mm -hmm. And the lesson from that is that, um, you know, Politics and, and ideology are more important than morality because ultimately the prosecution of, of these Nazi criminals is a, is a moral question of people being culpable for crimes and then having to stand to justice. And if they don't, it's because there have been structures of power put in place that say morality is not as important as our immediate political goals. Mm -hmm. 
I'd say, yeah, I think we're do- making progress at least by having infrastructures like the United Nations, the ICC, but there are certainly limitations such as the ICC, um, the US, Russia, and China, arguably three of the world's superpowers are not under that jurisdiction. But I was wondering if you could speak a little well, bit. Well, and they're, they're not only, they, they, they don't necessarily recognize that jurisdiction. And of course, there are tensions between all three of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's the United Nations is a wonderful idea. And, and I, I think we need to keep having a United Nations, but, but it is, the United Nations itself is a daily compromise between various political forces and national forces. And so its effectiveness is not the same as if everyone had agreed at one point to say they are the authority, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, having... And, and also, I mean, for example, when the, the court in Den Haag sentenced in absentia, various of the war criminals in, from Gabazna, Horace, or Govina, they continued to live there because there was no way to extradite them to the, the Hague. And so, you know, in some cases they finally were, but in others they weren't. And so you need the cooperation of various national governments and really of all governments around the world in order to make an international body of justice like that work. And that cooperation is not always there. Yeah, it's very difficult to have a supranational organization like the United Nations function with so many conflicting interests. But I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about how the Nazis went to Latin America. Well, I, you know, the, the, um, the, uh, there were certain governments in Latin America, like in Aus- uh, Argentina and Brazil, that were always very sympathetic to the Germans. Uh, there were many Germans in those countries uh, who were sympathetic to Nazi Germany even before the war. So, um, because these are members of, uh, often members of, a, of the, the ruling classes in those countries. And so, um, they were... W- if not openly welcomed, they were to- certainly tolerated, and many of them were allowed to exist there. So, um, you know, it would not have been possible for them, for someone like Eichmann to survive for you know, almost 15, for more than 15 years in, in Buenos Aires, had not there not been official acquiescence by the authorities in Argentina. And that's not just one government, that's several different governments. It's not just, you know, Perón and his, which was a kind of a fascist government, and, but even the democratic governments after that tolerated his. Uh, Paraguay was a, a haven for ex-Nazis. Uh, Chile, uh, under Pinochet was a haven for Nazis. So in many of these countries, people were allowed to, to lead normal lives. You know, sometimes they had to change their names and things like that. But other than that, um, they were certainly not actively prosecuted. No, uh, and that's why um, in some cases, like in the case of, of Eichmann, um, you know, the Israeli um, Mossad, 
the army, the the uh, the secret, the 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 intelligence service of the Israel Israeli government had to kidnap him because and get him out of the country without the knowledge of the of the Argentines. Argentinian citizens, because they could have never extradited him. And, of course, taking him out of the country against his will also is a violation of the national sovereignty of Argentina at one level. You could argue and say that it was illegal to do that. And in, in the way you'd be right, it was illegal. On the other hand, it allowed you know them to prosecute him. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think Argentina having a history of being a very, I guess, dictatorship-centric government at, in power had something to do with why um, the Nazis chose that country to sort of flee to and weren't able to be prosecuted? Yeah, absolutely. It was because, uh, I mean, from the, the late 40s uh, into the into the 60s it was a, a dictatorship then it was democratic for a while then it was a dictatorship again in the in the 70s and early 80s where they were killing their own um, you know there uh, there are many stories of of the opposition they would take them up in airplanes and throw them out of the airplanes intellectuals and, and, and people like that so it was an, it was an environment that was conducive right now Argentina is again in a democratic phase but look what's going on in in, in, in Brazil in Brazil um, we are very close to having a fascist government there right now so you know these things change over time but um, but there are especially in many of these countries where there are not strong democratic traditions. There is always this danger of a military takeover um, and, and setting up a military government or, you know, a populist fascist government taking over. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd like to end this question as well with um, going back to how immediately after World War II ended or soon after the U.S. sort of pivoted to their anti-communist policies like a theme going forward. Um, do you agree with the saying that or the idea that people really need a common enemy to unite and is why a lot of governments choose to antagonize a certain group? No, I don't believe that people need a common enemy. I think a common, creating a common enemy is an opportunistic way to, to control people. And it, because it, it, creating an image of an enemy always has the opposite function of uniting internal people internally against that common enemy. It is not the way we necessarily have to live. I think if there was more tolerance around the world and we would, uh, and, and people were more accepting of diversity, no matter what it is, for example, racial diversity, ethnic diversity, uh, and if people were not so fearful of those that don't look like they do, then we would all be better off. And, you know, I am 
still optimistic that we can, that there, we, we are making baby steps towards that goal. I know, you know, uh, I grew up in an America that was still extremely racist, um, you know, until uh, uh, I was a certain age in school. I n- never had any contact with African-Americans. Um, I overcame that. Um, but I see my daughter now, who's a little bit older than you, um, and she is really colorblind. She does not, you know, see d- differences in, in races the way, you know, people of my generation do. She, by the way, is an ethnic Chinese. She was born in west of Shanghai, in Tongling. So... Yeah, I guess um, have is a really strong word. In my question, I think I meant more of a tool type of form that governments would use this, but that the basis for all this change is really empathy and fostering that. That's that's true. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Dr. Horak. Um, It was really interesting today to hear about the major problems in not only the past, but the present such as Holocaust, mass brainwashing, and gun control, and how it's really up to everyday people like Eli Wiesel to do their part and stop history. Um, I guess my biggest takeaway is that we really have to step out of traditional thinking per se, and those who take those steps to break the norms will be the true change makers of our generation instead of being bystanders like Argentina where justice really can't be served um yeah as i have a quote as steve maraboli said the right thing to do and the hard thing to do are are usually the same thing i think our talk today really embodied that statement so once again right so much for your time and insights dr horak it was you're welcome really a pleasure to have you okay oh yeah sure no worries (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode of History for Two. Please share this podcast with your friends and tune in for other episodes. You can also find full video episodes on the website www.history42.com.